Thank you, Dharni Dharan. And uh, at the outset, uh, my thanks to my good friend, uh, Derek O'Brien, and to Professor Gehring and uh, either Professor Junior for taking the time to join us today. Uh, the DPF was set up under the kind of slogan that ideas are the lifeblood of a movement and that the Dravidian movement, which has lasted a century, which is quite a remarkable run for any movement, and uh, run the government of Tamil Nadu for all but 30 of those 100 years in various parties' descendants, uh, was in dire need of rejuvenation of ideas and a reintellectualization of the political discourse. I am glad to say that uh, despite very little involvement from me, uh, the executive coordinators, Puhal Gandhi, uh, the, the lawyer, and Dharani uh, Dharan, the globally uh, educated uh, management specialist, have done a very good job of really expanding the horizons and bringing in wonderful speakers like this panel from all over the world and uh, really uh, setting the high watermark for the quality of debate. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, let me uh, switch to the topic of hand. Uh, I really um, don't want to take too much time because I'm an active politician and, and a sitting minister. So, you know, these are things that I say all the time and I don't want to repeat myself and uh, use up valuable time from the other panelists. So I'll just make about three or four points. Uh, the first, I think, is that uh, despite the errors of federalism that Dharani pointed out, um, the greatest contradiction I see is the uh, stance of uh, the Honorable Prime Minister today, Mr. Modi, when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, and the actions of his government, particularly after 2019, but even after 2014. We all recall that the 13 years that Mr. Modi was Chief Minister of Gujarat, he was the greatest champion of states' rights and federalism. He was the most vocal. Uh, he was the most vociferous uh, against uh, the, states, the, the union's intrusion as he perceived it, uh, in areas like GST, in NEET, in other places, in uh, allocation of funds and so forth. Uh, you know, the old adage, uh, where one stands depends on where one sits, seems to apply uh, exceptionally to his case. The minute he ended up in New Delhi, the, the kind of whole paradigm got shifted, uh, inverted on its head. And starting with the one nation, one X uh, kind of sloganeering, uh, which this administration is uh, very uh, famous for or infamous for, uh, the whole fallacy of homogenization being the basis for growth or standardization being the basis for efficiency started to get implemented one after the other. I've had cause to remark that one nation, one ration card is particularly hard to implement. In Tamil Nadu, for example, in our public distribution system, we have seven tiers of cards that give, get different types of benefits, and very few of them get things like wheat. Whereas most of our migrant workers come from the northern states, and they eat very little rice, which is the biggest uh, component of our public distribution system through the ration shops. And uh, most of them eat a lot of wheat, for which we don't even normally have adequate supply. So, you know, it's hard to standardize across the country when a state itself has seven different um, uh, types of cards. Uh, there are any number of examples, but I don't want to uh, kind of uh, uh, dull the point by repeated uh, examples. The second uh, shift of this, I would say, is on the financial side. 
and there it has been dramatic so uh, not just with the onset of gst which effectively removed uh, the power of taxation or the bulk of the power of taxation from the states the constitution already left uh, the overwhelming majority of direct taxation with the union and a small portion uh, of that and and probably two thirds of the indirect taxation with the states and after gst uh, i would say over 75 80% of indirect taxation is also with the union itself but also as pointed out a dramatic shift uh, towards cess and surcharge which now make up something like 23% of the entire revenues of the union government and therefore are not divided between the states uh, to the states now this is particularly galling for states like tamil nadu uh, or for that matter maharashtra where for every rupee of taxes we pay in uh, on estimate we get you know depending on the state maharashtra about 20 paise and tamil nadu about 35 paise back so the more the government takes into the cess uh then it's further uh, you know reducing that number and uh, it starts to become a bit lopsided now in all federal societies there are net transfers of assets and and funds from better off to worse off uh, sub entities but in most other societies those transfers tend to narrow the gap in india the greater the transfers uh the further the gap seems to rise every year, every decade the gap between the better off states and the less well off states keeps on uh, expanding and uh, there seems to be no end in sight uh this shift to the centralization of taxes has been accompanied by a deep intrusion into the delivery of benefits as well so a recent paper uh, and in fact it's on the government's website so we don't need to quote any other web uh, data the government's website on direct benefit transfer shows that what was almost zero in direct benefit transfers from the union to people in 2014 last year was about 5.25 crores or you know uh, one and a half times the size of the budget of tamil nadu so the union not only takes 100% of uh, you know petrol and uh, diesel taxes and the bulk of all other taxes and 23% of total revenues and assesses and 58% or 59% of the uh, income taxes and the uh, gst um, and then it this decides to bypass the state and the uh, local bodies and go directly to the people as far as possible now of course we know that this fallacy that you know one man and or two men sitting as god can direct outcomes is uh, proven uh, to be kind of uh, uh, extreme fallacy every day because we see not just the failure of schemes like uh, you know the swatch schemes or the krish uh, kalyan schemes where the money doesn't get used properly or gets returned because funds for whitewashing buildings are not used when there are no buildings to whitewash when schools are run in thatched huts or when toilets are built but they don't have water supply because that's the municipal administration's responsibility or even outright scams like the pm kisan scams we've seen in tamil nadu where you know uh, thousands of crores sometimes have been stolen through outright uh, uh, fraud and forgery and the union government doesn't seem particularly well equipped to catch it and in the case of our predecessors neither was the state government the last point i'll make in terms of uh, concrete uh, shift in the in the dilution of federalism is about data you know with the aggressive use of other which itself has all kinds of limitations in terms of the courts uh, mandates but whether they followed or not is a different story 
Uh, there's also the whole question of uh, the lack of data purity or data integrity that so many false records have been introduced into the system that even a positive match of a retina or a fingerprint may not mean anything because enough false records are there that might be an arbitrary record that you then validate with the biometrics. But most of all, it is the use of this data that seems to have no kind of conception of federalism. The union government owns the bulk of this data. It uses it whichever way it wants. It feeds it to its partners, like the geophone company, in ways that are you know, questionable about the separation of uh, uh, you know, public versus private entities. And yet, states don't have access to this data nearly as well as private entities like Geo do. Uh, and uh, I'll, you know, two or three other examples, the whole electoral bond model, where only the union government agencies know, and therefore the union government knows. So the rest of us don't know who gives the money, where it comes from, uh, you know, kind of institutionalized corruption, if you will, or, or uh, uh, rent seeking. Uh, the income tax data, which again, very few of us have uh, adequate access to where we to decide to have a, a, a means test for our benefits. And even something as basic as the vaccination data, which required all the inputs to be put into the COVID portal, but the states did not have access to at least the granular data. We didn't have any access at all. When we finally asked and uh, repeated, we were given at a gross level, at like a district or a city level. But that doesn't help us. When we want to do pandemic kind of countering, we have to know street by street, block by block, where the gaps are in vaccine penetration and overlay that with the antibody sampling and with the kind of demographic modeling to know where are the high-risk groups, but we don't have access to the data. So it's ironic that we find that those who have the data either don't use it or use it uh, you know, immorally, if not outright illegitimately. And then the rest of us who actually could use the data and uh, you know, uh, legitimately use it to benefit our efficiency of, and delivery of our schemes, don't have access to the data. Now, the question that's always uh, uh, lingered in my mind is, it's one thing for non-BJP states like, uh, uh, you know, BJP government states like West Bengal or Tamil Nadu to um, kind of rail against this and, and uh, uh, you know, our, our uh, political philosophy and our federalism principles are aligned with the current situation. I've always wondered why it is that the BJP states who suffer just as bad outcomes, whether it is Gujarat or UP or Karnataka or any of these, why are they not ch champing, uh, you know, at the, at the bit and saying, uh, uh, this is no good for us. You know, we don't have access. We, we are powerless. We are uh, uh, beholden to the efficiency or lack thereof of your execution. Uh, we want to be masters of our own destiny, at least as far as the constitution provides. And I've started to think that maybe we're reaching a breaking point on that in the sense that, of course, the organizational strength and capabilities of, of the RSS and of the, of the, you know, the Hindutva ecosystem are far superior at a national level, at least to anybody else. Many of us are regional parties and, the, uh, you know, the, the once national party of the Congress is uh, not anywhere at the organization capability that the RSS and the BJP have. So it is that organizational strength that has kept the system under suppression. But even that, I think we are starting to see the limits of that, uh, both in the GST Council, where I'm a member, I'm starting to see uh, even BJP states start to question uh, whether this kind of centralization of power 
and decision making and lack of access and input to the states is sustainable model and i think we have also seen that through the kind of uh, political turmoil in places like karnataka and places like uttarakhand gujarat where the, you know regime change within the party has had to be facilitated once or twice or multiple times uh, shows you that this maybe the system is starting to creep and the natural uh, tendency for all human beings to want to be free to be uh, with self respect to have some control of their destiny to have self determination is starting to rise and bubble up even through the massive kind of uh, uh, organizational suppression skills of the the rss and the bjp so with that i'll leave it there and just uh, uh, you know look forward to learning from the views of the other panelists and then if there are any questions that i can jump in at the end i'm happy to do that thank you thank you so much for your time sir thank you adil i think now we'll go ahead and ask questions mr jay shankar has I mean has been waiting to ask his question for a long time so jay shankar you can just go ahead and ask your question please tell me uh, to whom the question is directed the question is to our finance minister this discussion here we are talking about uh, safeguarding federalism however any authoritarian or central uh, unitarian government grabs the power in the name of nationalism so that is what bjp is also doing like uh, ptr said in 2001 uh, mr modi was the champion of uh, states rights but whereas 2014 onwards is exactly against of whatever he has been preaching when he was a chief minister he is trying to grab all the powers into delhi this grabbing of powers always happens in the name of nationalism so what is the action plan of regional parties to convince their electorate that regional ethos culture heritage or linguistic importance is more important than a nationalism so what are the plans how are the regional parties planning to approach this nationalism versus regionalism that is my question yeah i mean it's hard for me to speak for all regional parties of course but i will speak for ourselves and i think the ideal point is that we don't want this debate to be about nationalism or not nationalism we want the uh, we want the point to be about performance about delivery about compassion about outcomes and at least in the case of uh, the dmk government now where we want to show the distinction between ourselves and the government in delhi is in the extent of inclusion the extent of uh, 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 fairness the extent of equity uh, in outcomes not just in intent and most of all in execution the greatest weakness that this government in delhi has and uh, normally we should not be talking about one government right because we are talking theory we are talking like uh, professor gering said uh, during said that this is about the theory which model is better suited what are the pluses and minuses of every model but because we have this extreme government um, um we we are forced to talk about uh, in response to them really the debate should not be in response to them but in response to them the single biggest uh, weapon we have is good performance and good outcomes because you know while they are excellent at authoritarian kind of power grabs and at uh, uh, the projection of almost a, a kind of extortionist uh, 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 you know mindset uh, they are not at all good at delivery they are not at all good at actual performance 
the economy has seen you know continuous shrinkage unemployment is rising and at some point uh, it's only because people don't have hope or people perceive that all outcomes are going to be bad outcomes now at least let me feel uh, uplifted by belonging by uh, being in the majority because of othering somebody else it is this kind of low road populism uh, demagoguery rabble rousing call it what you will and the way to fight that is to actually show that there is a high road there can be compassionate uh, uh, policies that deliver growth that deliver jobs and that uh, give you uh, good outcomes and I, and i just use one example to prove my point that i have often said that tamil nadu is probably the most practicing hindu uh, percentage state in india uh, everybody goes to the temples all the time every street has temples so is it not a bit ironic or at least contradictory that in the most hindu state in india the bjp as the professor said rightly is not able to even grab a toehold right they they constantly fighting around the 3% mark i mean last last election was an exception they got their uh, kind of beholden allies to uh, uh, give them a few seats but in reality you know in uh, let's say we look at municipal elections they are not going to be make any inroads at all they are almost irrelevant so clearly in some way tamil nadu has figured out this formula that is that if you provide opportunity jobs education upliftment and some measure of equity then you don't need to other somebody to feel good about yourself your your life actually improves and you can feel good about yourself and i think that's really the approach that we want to take at least as a dmk thank thank you sir there's one one question for the honorable minister from mr mukesh his question is why is uh, birth slash death certificate now being centralized why no cent- state governments are opposing it tooth and nail the more more the data is centralization the more we move towards dictatorship erosion of state power is very rampant with this bjp government in the union if this rampant appropriation of state power doesn't stop then it will lead to fight for self determination much vigorously yeah i you know uh... the i i i agree and i disagree i uh, you know i couldn't agree more that uh, we need to make sure that uh, 100% of all inputs go to the union and 0% of the utilization of that data comes to states which is and the model now is not a sustainable model we all fail as a, as a people because of that i disagree a bit in the sense that you know uh, there's a big gap between authoritarian ambition and authoritarian reach you know i've said this before that uh, the kind of uh, reach of these uh, uh, authoritarians far exceeds their grasp just because they have the data they're not actually able to use they use it effectively in individual cases or they use it as a threat uh, almost extortionary threat but you don't see actually uh, you know maybe it's because tamil nadu is an exception maybe it works really well in up i don't know my experience is limited but in places like tamil nadu you know we don't see the the union government's uh, um actions or policy making or direction being uh, well managed by the data and you see part of the problem here is that uh, you know uh, this uh, this god complex make it so because i said so uh, does not work unless you can bring a mechanism that actually executes that and uh, the government as i've discovered after coming to uh, sit in office for the last 6 months is broken you know just because we think the data exists in 
system. Now, let's take the other. When the other was supposed to be seeded aggressively quickly, uh, um, uh, tens of vendors or hundreds of vendors were, were engaged all over the place. Now, the whole notion of a, a, a national unique identification database is that it must be free of impurity in injection, right? It may have uh, spelling errors, it may have these things, it may have the mistake of uh, one person having, uh, you know, randomly applied it to different points. These must be way, way exceptions to the rule. You must have 99.9% or so accuracy in the control of validating that unless there was a birth and therefore the birth leads to a social security number request or there was a citizenship transformation or some, there must be some paper trail that leads to these and it must be one by one. Well, once you had hundreds or you know, maybe even thousands, if I really think about it, vendors who were asked to do this job, uh, we have heard of so many cases of the injection of records where a name, a face, a retina, and a fingerprint or a set of fingerprints match, but all of them are fake, meaning the, the, the person doesn't exist on that name. Some human being exists with those physical features, and they are entered as having some name and some age and some detail, and there is no verification or validation of this done. Right? And these databases are so large that the only real kind of current use of these databases for validation is if I put in a name and say, does this fingerprint match this name? The database can say yes or no. I can't put in a database and say, search me the one point, uh, you know, something billion records that you have and tell me who is this. Those, those kinds of applications just don't exist in the country. So if you have now in introduced completely fake data for the sake of getting additional benefits or escaping the system or whatever it is, once you admit that there are, let's say, 10,000 or 50,000 fake records in the original database, then no validation of a human being is worth anything because I don't know if the original entry was a valid entry or not. So what a country like the US through social security or the UK through NHS or, the, uh, or Singapore through the NRIC, what they did painstakingly individual by individual, birth by birth, citizenship transformation by citizenship transformation, we tried to do in a rush and uh, though we claim we were leapfrogging people to go to retina scans and fingerprints and all, it's only as good as the integrity of the data in the first place and the data is uh, irreversibly compromised. So the same thing goes, let me give you this birth and death because it's closer to the question. When we look at the birth and death registers in the civil record, in the civil register, in many cases, the number of deaths registered have come down after the COVID uh, pandemic. That's not possible. Right? I mean, like it's just not possible because we know that the, the gross death rate has gone up quite a bit uh, because of the pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of people have died across the country, millions probably. And in Tamil Nadu, you know, tens of thousands at least. So the system breaks down because you have all this extra work to do, because it's, uh, you know, staffed by the same people, because it's a new process, because there's no checks and balances. Even at a state level, you know, when we, we had the COVID the second wave, I'm super, super impressed and happy and proud of the way we were able to bring it under control in two months, just having come to power, not having been in power for 10 years. All of the good things I say are, uh, you know, something to be happy about, something to be proud about. But there was no effective tracking mechanism for how donations were received and dispersed.
I'm not even talking about cash. Cash goes into the chief minister's fund. That's okay. But if money was donated at uh, you know at uh, government hospitals or at district offices or equipment or concentrators or uh, medical supplies, there is no mechanism. There was none put in place to track how these came and how they went and where they went. So you know that's the kind of trade-off we made because the government is just not designed to do things like this. So I you know though I I, I am. Hundred percent, both cautious and uh, philosophically against the notion of the center of the union uh, intruding into things that it does no reason to be in. Uh, some things are not that worrying to me. Number one, and many things are the the, the kind of uh, alleviating factor for me is that there's a huge gap between intent and execution, and so far at least the union government has not shown. That it has anywhere near the execution capability required to do large-scale kind of big brother. It can do individual extortion very effectively. We've seen that, but it's not yet got the capability, and I don't think it will be anytime soon because nobody has all the skills. Once you concentrate power and decision making into two people, it's very hard to build an effective system that can then police 1.4 billion people to the level of a big brother that you would like. So it's an inherent contradiction in terms, and we see the uh, the evidence of that every day. Thank you so much, sir. There's a question from a TPF member who sent it to me in WhatsApp. His question is: We are. It's very clear that uh, BJP is trying to destroy every tenets of uh, democracy as well as fed, uh, federalism. Is it uh, so? Will Indian democracy survive after 2024 if BJP still wins? And what are the plans that the D- uh, DMK party has? for the 2024 election that being very important for indian democracy as well as federalism look uh, you know we are a democracy yes we are elected uh, autocracy in some ways as uh, my friend derek o'brien put it but at the end of the day the people get the government they deserve if we have arrived at this pass where the the poor uh, uh, those without hope north end up voting for division rather than for their pocketbooks or their stomachs uh, it is an indictment of society as a whole right it's 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 a telling distinction that in those states on the coast and in the south uh, you know in the west even even in gujarat the bjp's uh, kind of uh, hold has started to fade because once you have affluence once you have education once you have progress though you know gujarat is not is is one of the highest uh, uh, gini coefficient uh, disparity states uh, people start thinking for themselves also places that still have their own language you know that has been a big uh, distinguishing factor uh, wherever people have held on to their native language uh, the bjp has had much less success than places that have given up their, their native languages for uh, hindi kind of homogenization which is precisely why the bjp tries again and again to push hindi down and to try and uh, you know homogenize the rest of the country by stripping away regional identity i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon whether it's even karnataka where kannada pride is uh, is resurgent uh, suddenly in the southern states suddenly in the western states in the eastern states so forth uh, all the way from kind of maharashtra uh, back to uh, west bengal um you know this belt is not susceptible because of its identity and its language as for the 24 election you know we are a regional party 
there's only really one primary objective and that is for us to win all 40 states, uh, seats including pondicherry which we did almost uh, we won 39 or 40 in 2019 uh, we are fairly confident we'll win 40 or 40 in 2024 the bigger issue though and this is really the goal for us is not just to win our 40 seats because at the end of the day out of 542 seats the 40 seats while they're important, are not going to be the game changer or the determiner of the final outcome. The final outcome depends on whether the Hindi belt kind of decides to vote with its uh, uh, its pocketbook and its uh, and its uh, chapati bowl, rather than uh, with its kind of divisive uh, uh, mindset and othering and, and uh, you know this kind of jingoism. And that I think uh, what we can really do is. Uh, provide an example, as I've said before, that really there is another uh, option. There is the possibility of actually making progress, of actually having jobs, of actually seeing growth, of, uh, of delivery of goods, of delivery of public infrastructure, of services. And to say, if that is possible in Tamil Nadu, then why is that not possible in, uh, in Rajasthan or UP or Bihar? And that is the message, really, that I think we can add value to the to the national election. Otherwise, we are a regional party, and uh, you know the the immediate prospects are just for us to win our, uh, our seats, which we have done before, and we'll do again. Uh, you know, I'm fairly confident of that. But we want to change the nature of the debate. We want to change the debate towards uh, what is in the interests of society. What does harmony, the rule of law, uh, you know. Uh, uh, a compassionate framework provide not just for quality of life, but also for growth and progress and, pro uh, and prosperity. Uh, for example, even our political opponent, Ms. Jalalpa, her slogan was Amaidi Valam Valarchi. Peace, law and order, a calm, a stable, then prosperity and growth. So, you know, that I think most educated people understand that you can't have a society in turmoil and fantastic growth rates, at least not in a sustained way. And uh, we want to show that if you have a calm, harmonious, relatively speaking, society and a thoughtful government and capable execution, you can see significant progress in two, three, five years. And in the case of our government, it will be three years between when we came to power and the 2024 election. So the best contribution we can make to the broader national election is to do a really good job of administration providing uh, new jobs and, and showing growth and prosperity and hoping that will influence the national mindset and the national debate. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I think with this, we could, uh, we could close, the sh uh, close the event. We're already two minutes late. So I thank everyone for coming, especially the minister for his time and for Adil for coming at the, uh, the last minute notice and the professor John Gering from uh, US to have joined us. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone.